Iraqi army in 1991. But we would not stop at the Euphrates River. We planned to go all the way to Baghdad and beyond. And under our strategy, decisive air operations would begin after our ground units went into combat. This was a calculated risk, but in 38 years as a soldier, I'd learned the difference between a risk and a gamble. Next, I introduced U.S. Army Lieutenant General David McKernan, our land component commander in Kuwait. Mr. President, we have 170,000 American, British, and Australian soldiers and Marines that are trained and ready here. We're proud of the British and the Australians, the President said. As we speak, David continued, we're moving into forward attack positions along the Kuwaiti border. Our logistics are in place to sustain our operations for as far north and as long as we need to go. General, George Bush asked him, you got everything you need to win? Yes, sir. Are you satisfied with the strategy? Yes, sir. Next came my naval component commander, Vice Admiral Tim Keating, in Bahrain. He described his 149 ships, 60 from coalition allies, deployed in the eastern Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and the Arabian Gulf, a fleet that included five aircraft carriers. We're ready to execute, Mr. President. Got everything you need, George Bush asked again. We do, sir. President Bush tilted back in his chair and smiled. I'm going to stop asking about the plan since you guys were the ones that developed it. I heard laughter around the teleconference loop. The president had the natural leader's ability to put his subordinates at ease. I moved on to our Marine component commander, Lieutenant General Earl Haleston, also in Bahrain, who led our consequence management task force. Morale is high, he stressed and added that his forces were ready to respond to any incident involving biological or chemical weapons. All across the theater of war, our young men and women were pulling on their hot, uncomfortable mop protective suits before saddling up in the rest of their combat gear. Our latest intelligence reports suggested that the Iraqi frontline units and Republican Guard divisions had been armed with nerve and mustard gas and possibly weaponized anthrax and botulinum toxins. Neither Earl Haleston nor I could confirm the validity of this intelligence until the troops entered Iraq, but we had seen the Iraqis training to operate in a weapons of mass destruction environment, and communications intercepts indicated their concern with chemical weapons and toxins. Indeed, since the Iraqis knew we wouldn't use WMD, I thought, their preparations must mean they will use it. I had no doubt WMD would be used against our forces in the days ahead. The enemy had the artillery and missiles to deliver these weapons of mass destruction. It was my duty as Commander U.S. Central Command to make certain the coalition forces I would order into harm's way were protected against any threat the enemy could present. Indeed, I was glad that we had created Earl Haleson's task force to respond to whatever WMD threats we might encounter. Safeguarding the kids in my command to the maximum degree possible while accomplishing the mission was a responsibility I took very seriously. But in the coming hours, no matter how well my commanders had prepared their units, some of these brave young people would be killed and wounded, an immutable aspect of war that those who had never experienced combat often forgot. 
I'd learned my first lessons about war's harsh reality as an artillery fort observer in the rice paddies and mangrove swamps of Vietnam's Mekong Delta 35 years earlier. Tonight, as our soldiers and Marines bulldozed through the thick sand berm on the Iraqi border and rolled north into the dark fields of landmines, they would be ready to shed their blood, following the orders that I would transmit to their commanders. Even after all these years in uniform, this still amazed me. I would be seated in my air-conditioned command center in Qatar, scanning a wall of digital maps pulsing with bright symbols, but I would also be riding in those clanking Abrams tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles. In my mind, I would choke on the dust and sooty diesel fumes and smell the bitter sweat of fear. I continued to introduce my commanders, moving the teleconference around the region. From a desert field site near Saudi Arabia's border with Iraq, U.S. Army Major General Dell Daly, who commanded the elite special mission units of Task Force 20, told the President his men were ready to go to war again. Dell's Joint Special Operations Command had spearheaded ground combat in Afghanistan in October 2001, less than a month after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. In Operation Enduring Freedom, Central Command and its Afghan allies had defeated the Taliban regime and destroyed Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda terrorist sanctuary in 76 days. Now my command was going to war for the second time in less than two years. While the component commanders reported their readiness, I glanced at the CENTCOM logo on the conference room wall. The map of our area of responsibility, or our AOR, covered 25 nations spreading from Africa across the Arabian Peninsula, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, then on through the former Soviet Central Asian states, right up to Kyrgyzstan's glacier frontier with China. Half a billion people, most of them young, poor, and angry at their plight, lived in this troubled area. War had plagued the region, which held 65% of the world's proven reserves of oil and natural gas, for decades. I remember the advice my predecessor, Marine General Tony Zinni, had offered before I'd assumed command in July 2000. Tom, he told me, your mission will be to foster peace, stability, and security. But the region is boiling over with destabilizing tribal, ethnic, and religious hatred and is fertile ground for terrorism. If America gets involved in a major war in the next few years, it will probably be in this part of the world. It's a dangerous neighborhood. When the commander's reports ended, I spoke again, slowly, deliberately, aware of the historic moment. Mr. President, this force is ready. D-Day, H-Hour, is 2,100 hours tonight, Iraqi time, 1,800 hours Greenwich Mean, 1,300 hours East Coast time. President Bush nodded to the National Security Council, then turned toward me. All right, for the sake of peace in the world and security for our country and the rest of the free world, he paused as we listened intently, and for the freedom of the Iraqi people, as of this moment I will give Secretary Rumsfeld the order necessary to execute Operation Iraqi Freedom. Tommy, the president added, his voice firm, may God bless the troops. The 7,000 miles separating me from the White House vanished. I felt the impact of the President's invocation. Mr. President, I answered, may God bless America. 
I saluted, and the commander-in-chief returned the salute. The president had just ordered me to go to war. The troops were ready. The question in my mind was, am I ready? Watching a huge gray jet lumber down the runway and climb into the desert sky, I felt a deep well of confidence. But strangely, I did not think of my seasoning in combat, my years as a commanding officer, or the military education I'd received in my career. Instead, my thoughts cast back to the small towns of the American Southwest where I'd grown up. It was this environment, my family, my friends, my faith, that had formed my values, my character. It was these elements that had made me who I was, years before I ever put on the uniform of a soldier. Success in the campaign ahead would depend more on character, sense of purpose, and values, the nations, the presidents, my own, and the troops, than on raw military power. Winniewood, Oklahoma, June 1950. My understanding of the world and its consequences of right, wrong, good, evil, began when I was five in central Oklahoma. It may be hard to believe, but it's true. It was my father, Ray Franks, who taught me those lessons. You pull up just as hard as you push down, Tommy Ray, Dad said. He was trimming two-befores for our barn roof with a handsaw on the tailgate of the old Ford pickup. The saw blade snarled down through the board and ripped up with a thinner sound. His right arm tanned like leather under the short sleeve of a washed-out shirt, bulged as he leaned his stocky weight into the saw. It was summer. Nice in the shade of the cottonwood trees near the barn. I was barefoot. In faded bib overalls that were getting short in the legs. Sitting in the dirt watching my father work, listening closely as always to his soft-spoken words.